Roy and Ginger sitting in a tree. K-I-S-S-I-N-G. First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes Roy pushing a baby carriage. You ever do that? You ever, you ever tell that, uh, tease your friends with that one when you were little? When you were like in grade school or whatever? We would tease our friends when they would find their first love. Roy used to play ball with all of us. Next thing you know, all he wants to do is snuggle with Ginger. Pretty soon he's going to ruin his life if he doesn't get away from her. And so we would, we would tease him and try to get him back. Come on. We're playing ball. If he doesn't stop it now, he'll be totally lost to the sandlot. We'll never get him back. Funny thing, though, we knew the right order, didn't we, right? First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes Roy pushing a baby's carriage, and usually it worked out that way, but sometimes not always. We would know the right order, and we would try, we try to keep sequences in mind. Sequences are important, aren't they? I mean, if you're going to teach someone to read, you better start with an alphabet, right? And then you could move on to words, and from words to sentences. And sentences communicate thought. And so you kind of know these sequences. And um, if you're going to teach someone to replace brakes on their car, you better teach them how to take off a tire, right? Two bolts on the caliper, take it off, take off the pads, restore the piston, put them back all in the reverse order. That's how you do it. And you're going, yeah, I believe you. <laughs> Maybe, I don't know. <laughs> I think a surgeon probably has a sequence of events for appendectomies. Right? There, are, there better be a sequence of events. And she or he better go through that right sequence of events. Um, rocket scientists probably have sequence of events when they're going to launch a spaceship into orbit. And they probably follow them all the way down to where they count down. Ten, nine, right? A cook has a sequence of events for putting a ham in the oven. They, they know this. Of course, some sequences can be flexible. And, you know, sometimes even great things happen when things break down. They didn't happen the way they thought they were. In 1928, the Scottish scientist Alexander Fleming, working hard in his laboratory, working with staph infection, gives up. He needs a break. So in late August, goes on a vacation, takes a little holiday. He's out for a while. Nobody's in the, in the, in the laboratory. He just leaves it as he walks out. He gets back. September 3rd, 1928, there's this strange fungus growing in the Petri dishes, and all the staff is gone. In fact, all the bacteria is gone, and penicillin is discovered quite by accident, and medicine has never been the same since. 1948, uh, Percy Spencer, American scientist and engineer, um, uh, is working with these um, these large uh, uh, tubes and... um, one called a, I think it's called a Megatron. A, yeah, it's a Megatron. And, and he walks by it by accident and realizes that the Megatron produces microwaves. He walks by and realizes that it immediately, instantly melts the, the candy bar that's in his pocket. And that same year, invents a microwave oven. Uh, 19, 1853, George Crumb is in uh, Saratoga Springs, New York. He's a, a restaurant owner. And um, he cuts his potatoes in the style of the day. Nice, thick cut, fries them in a deep fryer, the, the, the French fry style. But some of his customers, the wealthier, more persnickety ones, are complaining that George cuts his fries too thick. And so he's quite annoyed by them. So he takes a peeler and he slices them so thin, like paper thin, 
drops them in and fries them till he can like over fry them, and then throws tons of salt on them and takes it to them as a practical joke. But they love it, and he unwittingly invents a potato chip, and uh, here you have it, and you know a total breakdown of the system. Sometimes great things happen in places you don't expect. In Mark's gospel, he's been moving us towards Jerusalem. He's, we're about to enter the, the last section, the third act of Mark's, Mark's three-act three drama. And he's moving us towards Jerusalem. Jesus has been clear. In fact, he's been very clear. The Son of Man must go to Jerusalem, be rejected by the religious leaders, crucified and die. And then three days later, he'll rise again. And you remember, when he tells this plan to him of his best friends, they say, No! Bad idea! <laughs> Don't die! Dying is never a good idea. That's, that's not the right way to start a revolution. Um, in fact, killing is the right way to start a revolution. Dying is not. So no. And Jesus says to his friends, remember, get behind me. Don't be adversarial to me. Get behind me. Get in line with this plan. And in Mark's gospel, in this chapter that we've got to today, Jesus is in, Jer- in Jericho. He's on the, the last leg of the tour. From Jericho, you go to Jerusalem. And so you, you, the last leg of the tour, Jesus is, is making his way, and we actually get the very, if you, if you look through Mark's gospel, the very last healing miracle happens right here, just before Jesus goes into Jerusalem. Mark is trying to get our attention. He's putting a, a big pause, you know, a big exclamation point. Look, listen up, pay attention. You see, there's this great crowd of people. They're gathering around Jesus. His fame is beginning to spread, and now there's this, there's this big movement. And you have to imagine, he's going outside of the city, heading towards Jerusalem, and here's this big crowd kind of pressing in. I kind of, I kind of envision it as like a, a festival or like a carnival atmosphere, you know? There's, there's people all over, and, and Jesus um, is moving along, and Mark tells us that as this big crowd begins to move out of the city, there's a man sitting, sitting at the side of the road. I mean, he's, he's way down below, you know? He's down below Joe Boisel level. He's even for he's way down there. He's sitting on the side of the road, hunched down. He's got his little cloak spread across his legs, maybe some coins, some little pieces of food people have tossed there. He, he's, he's begging. He, he can't see what's going on. There's a big crowd. And, and so he, um, he calls out, you know, what's going on? It's Jesus, the one from Nazareth. Mark tells us this fellow's name is Son of Timaeus, Bartimaeus. In fact, Bartimaeus is not his, his, his given name. Bar means son. Um, he's the son of Timaeus. Twice Mark has told us this. Once he tells us in the Greek way, the son of Timaeus, and the second one in the Aramaic way, Bartimaeus. So that we get, he's actually identifying this person. It almost never happens in, in Jesus' miracle stories. You rarely get a person named. And here Mark gives it to us twice. The son of Timaeus, a blind beggar. Not a lot of work for blind beggar or blind people in the, the, the ancient world. Um, not very many blind fishermen or carpenters or brick masons. About the only thing that you can do is sit at the side of the road and beg, and this is what this fellow does. And here comes the parade. Who is it? It's Jesus, the one from Nazareth. That's what, the, that's what all the commotion is. And so he starts yelling out, Jesus! Son of David, 
Jesus, son of David. And, and so much so, Mark gives it to us twice, I imagine it was much more. It was probably repeated, screaming, yelling, hollering, sitting down there on his little pallet at the side of the road. Mark has an economy of words. He can't tell us everything. So you have to imagine what it was like. So much so that people come to us and they say, or come to him rather, and they say, stop, shut up. You know, he's busy. You're, 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 he might say something and all we can hear is you barking out. And what does he do? All the more he yells out. I kind of imagine what it would be like if, um, if somebody famous, you know, like on a Saturday afternoon in the summer, showed up in Hudson. I mean, Bono, you know. You know who Bono is? Or Springsteen. Yeah? The Pope. I don't know who your people are. Somebody famous who shows up and is downtown at that first domain, right, the, you know, the square, and, and everybody kind of rushes up. You know, there's a, there's a big gathering around. And here you've got this fellow on the side of the road, and he's screaming and he's yelling, Jesus, have mercy on me, son of David. It's the son of David bit that got me. You see, um, Bartimaeus is on the inside track. He knows something about Jesus that's really important. If you, uh, if you had been able to be in the, the Gospels class that I was teaching and have been and continue today, actually we're going to study Mark today, but um, we, we did some background work in the Old Testament. Two real critical passages in the Old Testament that everyone must know if you're going to understand the grand narrative of the Bible. Um, Genesis 12, 1 to 3, uh, God's call of Abraham. But then the second one is the promise that God makes to David, King David. And the story goes, David is, is in his house. He realizes it's pretty nice. He's got the air conditioning on. Um, you know, the refrigerator is full. Uh, he's feeling like this is a really good day. And then he says, wow, you know what? And yet people are still worshiping in a tent. We're going to build a temple. Isn't that a grand idea? And, um, and, and long story short, God says to him, no, I don't want you to build me a temple. I'll have somebody else build me a temple when I'm ready for it. But it's a good thing that you wanted to do that. And here's what the Lord says to David. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, he means when you die, right? I will raise up our offspring after you who shall come from your body. I will establish his throne. He shall build a house for my name. This is the one, your son, this child of yours is going to build a temple for me. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Forever is a really long time, in case you haven't been keeping track. Forever. God makes a promise to David that there is going to be a son of his that will rule Israel forever. Bartimaeus, the blind man. Yelling out from the side of the street, Jesus, son of David, have mercy. He knows who Jesus is. He's on the inside track. You're going to love this. You forgot all about it already. He's blind. The blind man can see, and the seeing people are blind. Oh, Mark loves irony. He loves the fact that the, the blind man can see who Jesus is. He's the son of David. He has faith. And so Jesus calls him. What do you want? I want to see. So he does. He heals him. And what does he say? Go. Your faith has saved you. Go. Your faith has saved you. There's one more surprise that Mark has in store for us. Imagine you're blind. You've been blind a really long time. So long that you don't really remember what things look like. And your sight has been restored. What would you do? 
go home and see your parents? Oh, mom and dad. And that's what my sons would do. Um, Run home to see your parents? Uh, Go to a museum, maybe. You know, a, a church, a holy place. See a beautiful girl or a handsome fellow, you know? Oh, you're the most beautiful person I've ever seen. You know, you wouldn't lie. You go to the next person and say the same thing. You, just, you, you have sight. It's something you can see again. What does Bartimaeus do? What does he do at the end of this passage? Immediately he regained his sight and he followed Jesus on the way. He jumped up and got in line. I'm going to Jerusalem with him. I'm on my way there. You know, we live in a culture that is saturated with information and education. They are not the same thing, you know. Information and education are not the same thing. Everybody has access to information. Not everybody has been educated. It's hard to play trivia games with your friends anymore, right? Because nobody actually knows anything, but they have access to everything. So you have to tell them, Put your phone away or you're not allowed to use your phone. Because at the touch of their fingers, they have access to every bit of information that they could possibly imagine. You could ask somebody, how far are we from the sun? And in seconds, they'll be able to tell you how many stars have been categorized in the galaxy. How deep is the Black Sea? In what year was Rome overthrown? Every bit of information. We live in a culture that has every bit of information at its fingertips and knows none of it. Isn't that an irony of history? And we live in a culture that believes that because it has access to all this information, it has access to everything that's important in the world. And it is completely blind to God. We live in a culture that has a serious blindness. Almost daily. Almost daily. Nobody's even shocked anymore. When they turn on the television or the radio and they hear that there was a mass shooting, 50 or 60 people, a dozen people were murdered by somebody who walked into a a movie theater or grocery store, a school building, and mowed people down just for the joy of killing. And we flip on the news afterward to kind of catch up on this. And what are we told? It's a gun problem on the one hand, or it's a mental health problem. All you need are to get rid of guns or to get, build more mental hospitals. Those are both the wrong answers. We have a moral problem. We have a fundamental problem with morality in this world. We have a problem with evil in this world. That's why we have a killing problem. We are a culture that is blind to truth, blind to morality, blind to God. And the only way, the only way our culture will ever be cured of this blindness is if they see Jesus. Another real irony, isn't it? The only cure for blindness is seeing. And the only way they can see Jesus is to see a committed follower of his, a committed disciple. That's been Mark's whole second act. What does it look like to be a committed, authentic follower of Jesus? What does it look like in this world? Mark, always the clever writer, if you looked real closely at the end of the lesson, you would notice that he says, and Bartimaeus immediately got up and followed him, Jesus, in the way. Nice little prepositional phrase, in the way. 
Most of our English translations have it on the way. That makes more sense. He got up and he walked on the street. But that's not really what Mark wants us to see. It's not that Bartimaeus followed Jesus on the road. It's that he followed him in the way. He followed him in the way that Jesus lived. He followed him in the way to Jerusalem. And there's even one little bit more clever kind of uh, uh, you know, meaning in this. He followed him in the way. Do you know what the earliest church was called? They were called people of the way. Bartimaeus got up and followed Jesus in the way. There's a, there's a great old hymn called Lead On, O King Eternal. It's really not that old, 100 years or so. Um, but it's, it's a great hymn. Uh, it, it goes like this. Lead on, O King Eternal, the day of march has come. Henceforth in fields of conquest thy tents shall be our home. Through days of preparation thy grace has made us strong. And now, O King Eternal, we lift our battle song. I mean, it's a, it's a real um, militaristic metaphor, isn't it? It's a warring metaphor. The church is at war with the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we're going at it. We're going into battle. A lot of people are scared of this warring metaphor. I mean, after all, lots of, lots of hard stuff going on. But what is our tactic in this war? Politics? Legislation? Theocracy? No. Verse 2. Lead on, O King Eternal, till sin's fierce war shall cease. So that battle metaphor. And holiness shall whisper the sweet amen of peace. For not with swords loud crashing, nor roll of stirring drums. Not with swords or roll of stirring drums. With deeds of love and mercy, the heavenly kingdom comes. Oh, I didn't think it was going to be that way. I thought, I thought we had to fight for it. No. We have to follow in the way. In the way of Jesus. In the way of deeds of love and mercy. See, we have not been rescued to get right back into it and fight with those evil weapons. We have not been set free to turn our back towards peace. We've been set free to walk in the way. Walk in the way that leads to Jerusalem, to the cross. Walk in the way that leads to peace. Walk in the way... The life of Jesus. That's what he's called us to. And that is the hope of the world. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.